Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Welcome to this episode number 37 of the Employment Law and HR podcast. My name is Alison Colley. I'm your host for the show. Thank you very much for tuning in. This episode is actually part four of a series that I'm doing, a mini series on unfair dismissal. So thank you very much for tuning in. If you haven't already listened to the first three episodes in this series about unfair dismissal, that's not a problem. You don't actually have to have listened to those first before coming into this episode four, but it might help you if you want to listen to those first. Because this episode is going to be about the ACAS code of practice in dealing with disciplinary and dismissal issues. And also I'm going to touch upon uh, the contractual side of things if you've got a handbook or a staff um, manual which contains procedures in there. As I say, if you haven't already listened to those, go back and have a listen. Otherwise, I'm going to get right into the content. Okay, in today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the ACAS Code of Practice. Now, in the previous episode, episode um, three in this series, I talked about the reasonableness of dismissal. So I touched upon some of the procedural side of things there and also mentioned the ACAS code of practice. But what I'm going to do today is really drill down into what the code of practice is all about, what it says and what the background is. What I should do is start by giving you some context about the ACAS code of practice. And the code of practice is all about trying to resolve issues internally. For a number of years, several governments have tried to reduce the number of cases that end up in the employment tribunal. And one of the ways of doing that is to try to use a procedure that everybody has to follow, which will hopefully cut down on those cases that actually end up in the employment tribunal. Now, the um, ACAS code of practice follows on from what was um, rather a disastrous piece of legislation that was in place for about five years from 2004, October 2004 until April 2009, which was the statutory dispute resolution procedures. And this was sort of the precursor, if you like, to the code of practice that we have now. And for those of you who will remember who were in HR or dealing with staff at the time, basically what happened was the the procedure that you had to follow in order to dismiss somebody was set out in law. And if you failed to follow that, then it made the dismissal immediately unfair. Now, the reason this didn't work is because it spawned all kinds of additional cases, case law about the different elements of the procedure and the reading of it and how it was applied. It was a a complete nightmare for employers. It was great for me as a young employment lawyer. It was a really interesting piece of legislation and something to get your teeth into. And it meant that, you know, in many cases that came to you, you had something to to look at or some loophole to look through. So that's how um, it sort of led into the ACAS code of practice. So very quickly, it was established that that wasn't working and then that was repealed. So now we have the code of practice, which a failure to follow the code of practice doesn't necessarily render the dismissal unfair. Okay, so just merely following it won't make it unfair. However, 
If you fail to follow it as an employer, then the employment tribunal can increase um, the compensation that's awarded to an employee. And um, also it goes some way to that reasonableness of the dismissal and the fairness of the procedure that you follow. So the ACAS Code of Practice is taken into account by the employment tribunal, but a mere failure won't necessarily make the dismissal unfair in itself. Now, helpfully, the ACAS Code of Practice is available um, on the ACAS website, and I'll put a link to that in my show notes. And what you should do is you should check into the ACAS Code of Practice regularly if you're dealing with a case of um, a disciplinary or dismissal issue. You should check into it because it is revised. There are changes that are made to it. And there have been some changes made quite recently in March 2015 uh, about um, various things that have come from case law. So always check in that you're looking at the most relevant version. And it's a fairly short document. Half of it's about disciplinary, the other half is about grievance procedures. And today I'm going to be talking about the disciplinary side of things. Now, the code of practice applies in relation to specifically into conduct dismissals and dismissals for poor performance or capability. So those ones that you definitely have to follow the ACAS code of practice for. It specifically excludes redundancy dismissals and the non-renewal of fixed term contracts. So there's definitely no requirement to follow the ACAS code of practice if you're dismissing an employee for one of those things, redundancy or fixed term contracts. Now, when it comes to some other substantial reason, you'll recall from um, episode two of this mini series that I talked about the potentially fair reasons for dismissal. And one of those is some other substantial reason. Now, the code of practice is silent on whether it applies to some other substantial reason dismissals. Okay. However, there have been some cases which have looked at this point. And there was a case in the Employment Appeal Tribunal which was Lund versus St Edmund's School of Canterbury, which applied to some other substantial reasons. And what the Employment Appeal Tribunal there said, the employer had invoked disciplinary action, albeit that it wasn't conduct or capability, it was some other substantial reason. And therefore, they concluded that they should have included following the code of practice in that dismissal decision. And there have been some other cases that have been in the employment tribunals where they have concurred and said that just because it doesn't specifically include some other substantial reason, it doesn't exclude it either. And so it's not therefore necessarily restricted to consideration in relation to conduct and poor performance. So my advice to you as an employer is to ensure that you follow that procedure, whether you're dismissing for conduct for capability or for some other substantial reason. Tactically, there's another reason for doing that in that if you are investigating an issue and you've made up your mind at the very beginning that it's not conduct or capability and it falls into some other substantial reason, but then things come out later on and it actually turns out that it is a conduct reason, it's much better to have followed the ACAS code of practice in the from the outset um, and then you won't have to worry about going back and starting your procedures all over again. It will also help you in determining whether you're going to have a fair procedure and a fair dismissal. So ultimately, as we said in episode three, the Employment Tribunal will look at the reasonableness of the decision and the process followed. And if you follow the ACAS Code of Practice, you're more likely to be on the right track to getting that dismissal to be a fair one than if you don't. And I would say you've really got nothing to lose by following the procedure. You should do a minimum procedure anyway, whatever you're doing. And I advise my clients 
that whatever the scenario, they should at least invoke some form of minimum procedure. And some of my clients have asked me in the past about whether they should follow the procedure in relation to employees who have got less than two years continuous service. So if you've got less than two years continuous service, you can't claim unfair dismissal unless there are some certain circumstances. And and therefore, a failure to follow the code of practice will make little difference to um, the outcome for the employee in terms of whether they have a claim and, and the increase in compensation. So that's the argument that people have said to me about it. And my advice is it's really good in practice as an employer just to get into the habit of doing this whenever you have a disciplinary or dismissal issue with any member of staff. Yes, you might think it's time consuming, but once you know what you're doing and you follow the steps, actually it works very well and just really good practice for looking after your staff and ensuring that everybody knows where they stand and you also minimise the risk to your business. So I would say for all employees in any disciplinary or dismissal situation you deal with under the code of practice. Obviously if it's an informal issue or a minor issue of misconduct and you know you're not intending to issue them with any warnings or anything then you know it doesn't necessarily have to be formal but um, I would ensure that whoever deals with disciplinaries in your organisation is fully aware of ACAS code of practice. Okay, so that's enough of my lecture about why you should actually follow it and what I feel about it. And let me just tell you about what it actually says. Okay, what it says is essentially the ACAS Code of Practice is about promoting the principle of fairness and transparency in dealing with these sorts of issues. And it actually says, I'll quote from it, where formal action is needed, what action is reasonable or justifies will depend on all the circumstances of a particular case. Um, And then it goes on to say, in some cases, it's not practicable for employers to take all the steps in the code. Essentially, it's about fairness and transparency and trying your best to ensure that you're offering the best opportunity of fairness for an employee. Now, when promoting fairness, the ACAS codes gives six steps that they require employers to follow. And that is to say you have to deal with things promptly. So deal with the issues promptly. Don't delay. Be consistent in your approach carry out an investigation that's necessary for the particular issue in hand, inform employees and give them the opportunity to put their case to you to defend themselves, allow the employee to be accompanied and give them the opportunity to appeal. They are the six steps to fairness of your procedure. I'm going to run through each of those and tell you a bit about what it says in the code of practice about dealing with those. Okay the first thing it talks about is the investigation. So establishing the facts, establishing the facts of the alleged conduct or allegation that's before you. And we talked about the investigation to a degree in the reasonableness of the um, dismissal in, in episode three. What the ACAS code says is that wherever possible, different people should carry out the investigation and the hearing. So that's to say that you should have somebody separate who does all the investigation side of it and then presents that to the person dealing with the disciplinary hearing. The investigation needs to be fair and it has to be relevant to the particular issue involved. Next up is informing the employee. Now, it's not about keeping things secret. It's not about getting to the hearing and then presenting the evidence to the employee to shock them and and get a confession out of them. We're not talking here about LA law. It's um, about giving the employee the opportunity to consider what they're 
is alleged before and consider the evidence. So once you've decided, once you've carried out your investigation and you've made a decision that it moves forward to a disciplinary, then the person who's going to be dealing with the disciplinary hearing, not necessarily the investigator, if you've got two separate people and you can have separate people dealing with it, the disciplinary um, chairman, if you like, will inform the employee in writing that there's a case to answer. They must detail the alleged conduct in writing again or the poor performance that, that um, is being alleged so that the employee has enough information to be able to establish exactly what the allegations are. So it can't be too vague. It has to be quite specific. And you must tell them what the possible consequences are of the disciplinary action. So that is to say, if it's a serious issue and it could result in their dismissal, then you would say so in the letter. And at the same time, there's a requirement to provide the employee with the written evidence that you've accumulated as part of the investigation. So as I said before, it's not about trying to uh, catch them out. You have to give them all of the information that you intend to rely on at the disciplinary hearing. In addition, the letter should contain details of the meeting time date. And also, the Code of Practice is clear on this. It says that you must inform the employee of the right to be accompanied at that meeting. That's a positive duty on you as the employer to tell the employee that they have the right to be accompanied at that disciplinary meeting. And therefore, a failure to do so could result in a finding that you failed to follow the code of practice and which could lead to an increase in compensation for the employee if that's found to be an unfair dismissal at the end. What does the right to be accompanied actually mean? Well, the right to be accompanied is set out in law as well as being contained in the Code of Practice. And that says where there is going to be a meeting which could result in a warning or some other disciplinary action or dismissal or where it's a meeting that which is a meeting of an appeal in relation to um, some disciplinary warning or dismissal, then the employee has the right to be accompanied at that meeting. And they have the right to be accompanied by a trade union rep, an official employed by a trade union, or a work colleague. Okay, so there are three types of people to whom they can be accompanied at that meeting. And if the employee says they are bringing a trade union rep, for instance, then you must agree to allow them to be accompanied by that person. It's no good to say, oh, no, I don't really like them. I don't want them to come. You, you've got to choose another trade union rep or a work colleague. They have the legal right to be accompanied. And aside from being a breach of the code of practice, um, they could obtain compensation for a failure to be allowed to be accompanied at the meeting. So that deals with the investigation, notifying and telling them about their right to be accompanied. Then you must hold the disciplinary meeting. And in the meeting, the employee must be given the opportunity to answer the case, um, to know what the allegations are against them, so to have any information given to them that they want at the meeting. And also they have the right to call witnesses should they wish to do so. If for any reason the employee's chosen companion is not available at the date and time of the meeting that you've scheduled, then you must postpone the meeting and it must be rearranged to a date which is proposed by the employee within um, no more than five working days. So the employee then, if they can't attend because their companion is not available, must provide an alternative date which is reasonable and within not more than five days after the original date and then you'd have an obligation to reschedule that meeting. At the meeting, the 
employee's companion, whether that be a trade union rep or a work colleague, um, is allowed to address the hearing and to put and sum up the case on behalf of the employee. So they're allowed to express views on behalf of the employee and to um, make statements on behalf of the employee. But what they can't do is actually answer questions on behalf of the employee. So if you as a disciplinary chairman have questions that you want to ask about particular evidence or something that the employee has said or their representative has said on their behalf, then you can address that question directly to the employee and the employee must answer, not the companion. And then following the meeting, you have to decide on the action that you want to take, whether that be um, a warning or dismissal. So what the AKS Code of Practice says is that if it's the employee's first issue of misconduct and it's fairly minor or a minor issue, then you would give them a written warning. If it's the second issue of conduct, then that might be a final written warning. Or if it's serious misconduct or a second incident of serious misconduct, then it might lead to dismissal. And obviously, if it's gross misconduct, as we talked about in the previous episodes, it would be um, justification for potentially justification for dismissal immediately. And then following the meeting, you must give the employee the opportunity to appeal. They must be informed in writing of the outcome of the disciplinary and then um, given notice that they have the right to appeal. If you give an employee a warning, then you must also tell them how long the warning will stay on their record for and what will happen if they repeat that conduct or poor performance. So what the code of practice is saying is that it must be spelled out to the employee exactly what the consequences are of non-compliance or future misconduct. Then there is a small part in the code of practice about dealing with appeals and how they must be dealt with. And wherever possible, it says again that it should be dealt with impartially and by someone who hasn't already been involved. So if you've got somebody else in the organisation who hasn't been involved in the investigation, the allegations or the disciplinary, then they should deal with the appeal. And what I would say is when you're considering disciplinary issues from the outset is have a look at who within your organisation can deal with these different parts of the procedure and try to keep somebody completely separate from everything that's going on. Um, Maybe another manager or somebody from a different branch or something like that who hasn't had any prior involvement and who will be able to stay purposely, stay out of the whole situation so that they are free to deal with the appeal should that happen later on. So that's really a a real quick run through of what, without reading it out to you word for word, what the code of practice says in relation to how you deal with disciplinary and dismissal issues. And the guidance is fairly clear within the code of practice. So I would say whoever is, as I said at the outset, whoever is dealing with um, an issue of disciplinary or dismissal should have that code of practice, the most up-to-date code of practice, should I say, in front of them throughout and keep that in mind. I said at the beginning why you should follow the code of practice and in episode five of the um, series on unfair dismissal that's just coming next week I'm going to talk about compensation um, in more detail but what I will say in this episode is that in the event that you as the employer fail to follow the code of practice and there is a finding of unfair dismissal against you, an employment tribunal can increase the employee's compensation by 25%. So by up to 25% for your failure to follow that. So it could be quite costly just to follow those simple parts of the procedure. 
And secondly, I, I suppose what I also should, should also say is it is reciprocal. So if the employee fails to follow the code of practice in the process, then um, they can also have their compensation reduced by up to 25% for their unreasonable failure to deal with it. So to summarise, the Employment Tribunal will consider the ACAS code of practice in relation to conduct and capability dismissals. It is also likely that they will look at it in terms of some other substantial reason dismissals and they will look at it in terms of the overall fairness of your decision but also in terms of compensation increasing for your failure to follow. I will put a link in the show notes to the ACAS Code of Practice online so you can have a look at it and download the most recent copy. So that's the ACAS Code of Practice. Now I'm going to touch upon your internal procedures. What you need to be careful of as an employer is making your disciplinary procedures contractual. If your disciplinary procedures are contractual, then you will have an obligation to follow those procedures in most cases, to the letter, regardless of an employee's length of service. And I touched upon this slightly at the beginning about my advice to my clients when they have an employee who's got less than two years service and they want to dismiss an employee of less than two years service without going through the whole process. Now, as I said, unless the employee's got some other potential claim that doesn't require two years continuous service, technically, there would be a low risk by dismissing them without following any procedure. However, if you have in your in their employment contract that you've, you will follow a set procedure, so in your handbook, for instance, or in their contract, then if you fail to follow that, the employee could claim breach of contract regardless of their continuous service. So my first tip is to check to make sure you don't make your disciplinary procedure contractual. And the second tip is to check your procedure, your internal procedure, just to make sure that it is complying with the ACAS code. So it's in line with the ACAS code. And if it goes over and above what the ACAS code says, that whoever is dealing with your disciplinary and dismissal cases is aware of those um, differences so that they know exactly what they've got to do and what they're required to look at. If your procedures are not contractual and you fail to follow them, then there wouldn't be any separate claim or remedy for a failure to follow your internal contractual procedures. However, the Employment Tribunal will not look upon it very kindly if you do have an internal procedure and you've kind of just forgotten it altogether and not even bothered. That won't help you when you're trying to argue that it was reasonable to dismiss the employee for that particular issue. So keep that in mind. And in some organisations, there may be some um, union negotiated agreements in terms of how you deal with disciplinary and dismissal issues that might put further steps in place or additional requirements on you as the employer and how you deal with them. So it's always worth double checking those and wherever possible, making sure that you've got some clear and concise rules of conduct and what is expected and what you consider to be gross misconduct, all those sorts of things contained within your handbooks. So if you need any help with um, dealing with any disciplinary or dismissal issues and you're concerned about the risk to your organisation of unfair dismissal, then you can contact me. You can contact me by email. It's alison at realemploymentloradvice.co.uk or you can have a look on the website adviceforemployers.co.uk for other ways you can get in touch with me and I can advise you on your particular circumstances.
coming up in the next episode, episode five of the Unfair Dismissal series, is going to be talking about remedies. I'm going to be talking about the remedy for unfair dismissal. So what happens? What could you have to pay out? And what could be the consequences if an employment tribunal find that you have dismissed somebody unfairly? So we're going to be dealing with those. And then I'm going to do an episode six. I hadn't planned on doing an episode six when I started this series, but I am going to do an episode six, which is going to be dealing with some frequently asked questions. I've received some questions from listeners um, asking about various things I've talked about or just for clarification on points that might arise when you're dealing with the dismissal process. And so I'm going to be doing a specific episode answering those questions. What I would ask for you is if you have any particular issues that are relevant to you or questions that you come across regularly, then you can get in touch with me. I'll be happy to receive them. You can contact me on the website or via my email. And, and I will, of course, read them out. And you, I can read out your name or they can just be anonymous if you would prefer. Thanks very much for listening. I really appreciate you tuning in. And if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, I'd be grateful if you could leave me a review in iTunes. It's an excellent way of other people finding out where I am and what I do. So thanks very much. If you can go along and leave a review, I will be very grateful. This episode of the Employment Law and HR podcast was brought to you by the HR Harbour Portal. The HR Harbour Portal is an innovative cloud-based solution for employers. It's an excellent way of holding your employee records, keeping your personnel details all in one place, which can be easily accessed by managers at different levels. And it also gives you the opportunity for employees to use the service to book their holidays, to manage their sickness absence, all of those sorts of things in one easy place. So if you're fed up of having paperwork around the office, if you're worried about the security of your personnel records, then why not give me a call and find out about the HR Harbour portal service. And you can find more information at adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash HR hyphen support. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.